This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It was the best time of our lives. Getting money was all we ever did. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Carousel Podcast. Today we have a special guest that um, is involved in a special project. His name is Asher Penn. Welcome, Asher. Hey, Isaac. Hey. Um, so you run Sex Mag, which is a very cool publication that has a lot of interviews in it. Anakachian's been in there. Delicious Tacos is in there. Many people are in there. But yep. beyond, beyond that, uh, you are the man behind this trailer for the Untitled Delicious Tacos Project, um, which has been circling around our circles. And actually, Curtis Yarvin, just in his past two pieces, I believe, highlighted this project and highlighted the Kickstarter project very specifically. So uh, maybe just tell us about the project and what you're going for and where you're at with it. Yeah, Um I mean, that was really, really nice of Curtis to give us that shout out. And um, this is a project that um, I've actually been nursing for, I'd say, almost uh, about three years. Um, uh, or at least back to when I was working on TFW No GF. Um, and uh, it was around that time that... Uh, I was helping out with TFW and OGF uh, with their marketing and uh, some design work. I helped them out with their poster. And uh, around that time, I had, uh, for a long time, I'd been, for many years before that, I'd been working on writing feature scripts and I'd been uh, trying to develop feature films. And uh, I'd uh, written my uh, a few on my own and I'd written and co-written a few and uh done a lot of work, but there was a lot of challenges for launching. And uh, it was suggested to me that I get interest, uh, that I make uh, start making short films. And uh, uh, a popular thing, uh, it's kind of known that making short films is in certain ways, despite the fact that it is smaller as a project, it's actually uh, has its own set of challenges in its own way. The most, the biggest one being finding a compelling story that you can tell in a brief period of time that has a beginning, a middle and an end. And uh, so I had this I, notion of doing a short film and uh, another friend suggested that I maybe adapt a short story. And uh, I'd been looking at short stories and stuff. And it was around that time of TFW no GF that uh, I was delicious tacos was put in front of me as somebody that uh, was an interesting writer and um 
I started looking through his writing and immediately was kind of had this eye out for what if there's something that could be adapted into a short story. And it was going through that writing that one of his short stories just kind of jumped out at me as being absolutely perfect. And uh, I just really, I, I, I gravitated towards it and um, I couldn't really let it go. Um, the challenge was that despite the fact that it was actually quite a simple shoot with uh, two to three characters and extras and two to three locations and really not that much in terms of logistics and stuff. The big challenge was that because of the content of this film and the story, and also partially because of delicious tacos himself, I found it very difficult to find actors that would uh, sign up for it, uh, let alone producers. And, uh, was it that was, because they was that because they were offended or just they weren't interested? No, um, I rarely got offended. Um, what I often got was, um, "I like this, but I can't." Um, I like this because my manager won't let me. I like wow. this, but my. I really just think that this would be career suicide for me. Oh my God. Yeah. I got some very, I mean, and yeah, but very few people um, responded negatively to the story or the piece, but a lot of people responded that they just couldn't do it. Um, But, and yeah, and it was a very challenging a piece to find actors that would be willing to take on the roles. And it wasn't until the idea of Peter Vack taking on the role of Delicious Tacos that all of a sudden everything slowly just started to fall into piece into place. Um, and the other roles became really clear who the casting choices could be from that. Um, and it was largely also through Peter Vack's interest that I was able to uh, find Andrew Ruse, um, who was really excited about working with Peter and also enjoyed the story. And uh, it just seems to have led to a domino effect that in many ways just started with Peter um, signing on for the project. So tell me a little bit about Peter Vack, because obviously in the, so in this amazing trailer, which I, you know, you showed me this trailer a while ago and I was immediately very impressed. You know, I was a little unsure <laughs> when you contacted me, you know, like what, what, you know, we're, our relationship was going to be, because I feel like, you know, we're kind of part of different mafias a little bit, you know, so there's a little bit of like inherent suspicion but then mm. when I saw the trailer, I was like, oh, shit, this is really good. And and I was like, all right, I'm 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 totally on board just because I, you I think what you created with the trailer is uh, exciting, you know, and, and it, it packs genuine emotion into it. So at the end of the trailer, there's this I, I, we can spoil the trailer, right? Yes. OK. Uh, at the end of the trailer, there's this like reveal of this ripped um uh, the guy who's the, we know is the guy talking, and of course, Tacos' writing is so incredibly good that it's just you, you're immediately grasped. And then we see this man's perfect ripped torso, 
yeah. um, which is how tacos actually looks, but also is how Peter Vac actually looks. And yeah. the, the torso is Peter Vac. So yeah. um, who is, I, I know a little bit about Peter Vac. I know he was in Dasha's movie. I know that he's part of the kind of like dime square movie making scene, but like he had some mainstream success and then he became more edgy or can you just like tell us a little about him? Sure. Um, first of all, thanks so much for the kind words about the trailer. I'm really proud of it too. Um, yeah. Uh, Peter, and I don't believe that Peter has acted in anything that Dasha has directed. Uh, he, she, he's not in Scary of 61st. Oh, he's but, not. Oh, okay. Sorry. No, he's not. But uh, Dasha acts in um, his feature film that is uh, that he's currently editing. Triple W Rachel Ormont.com. I hope I said that correctly, Peter. If I didn't, I'm sorry. Um, if he's listening. But Peter is an exceptionally talented actor, writer, director, meme lord, um, who I had originally come to know uh, when I was trying to cast a feature film. Uh, back in 2019, actually, um, one of the roles, and uh, he was gung ho about it. And I really just knew him as a as somebody that was a young actor that was around um, that I had some mutual friends with. And uh, I also knew that he had directed a feature film called Act uh, called Assholes, which I had tried to watch. Um, in 2019 on a laptop with pretty bad internet connection. And um, I couldn't even get through this film. I was so deeply repulsed by it at the time. And uh, it was a weird thing. I had a very strong visceral reaction. So this movie, Assholes, stars Peter and his sister, the incredibly talented Betsy Brown, and is the story of... Uh, a young woman who uh, in, an, uh, in, in her newfound sobriety um, contracts an STD by sharing a bong with her brother and then ends up going on this kind of sexual rampage with a new lover that is uh, deeply, that involves quite a lot of paupers. Um, and uh, the plot kind of goes, it goes crazy from there to the point that uh, these people have got, have, have just become walking STDs essentially. And uh, it's a hilarious, you know, so when I first saw it, I could barely get through it uh, the first half. And then um, a few years later, it wasn't, I saw Betsy Brown's feature film, actors which also stars peter and um which i was just absolutely blown away by i my feeling is, is that actors is probably as far as um it's it is my favorite comedy feature film that has been directed by this demographic of uh artists director filmmakers so is this um, the trans one? Is actors the trans? Yeah, actors yeah, is trans. the one where Peter plays himself uh, transitioning in order to have more agency over his career, and Betsy also decides to have a child in order to 
gain more agency over her career. And it's about how things unfold as a result of that. It's really funny. It's, um, and not only is it absolutely like mind-blowingly hilarious and uh, the performances both by Betsy and uh, Peter are um, just unprecedented. I don't know. I, I mean, uh, they're, uh, they're just so deeply unrestrained and impressive and um, moving. And the, the film is just filled with these incredible moments. And I, I just loved it. So it and, got, it got uh, shut down at the music box theater in Chicago, I believe. Right. The music box was, is, which is this art indie movie theater. That I actually grew up going to, I used to go oh, there really? all the time with my dad. Yeah. My dad's a huge weird movie guy. So I, um, I grew up going to the music box all the time. And the music box succumbed to pressure from trans activists to not show the film, I believe. Right. It was called transphobic, which it isn't. Um, Yeah. So why is it not? Is it trans? Why did they think it's transphobic? It's not. um, I mean, let's it's the the film is about a person who is not trans. Right. Who transitions in order to gain agency over his career. Right. right. Um, that in, by, in my understanding of it is not a transphobic narrative. It's a narrative about, but um, I mean, yeah, the, the, that's as, that's as simple as I can possibly make it but i don't believe that it's transphobic um i think that the filmmakers are really making a critique of people that are willing that are willing to not be themselves in order to have control over their lives and uh to to be able to have you know i keep on coming back to this word agency um but i can totally understand that on a surface level that this film could be interpreted as being transphobic um i don't agree with that narrative but uh and i think that it's also pretty surprising to have a film that clearly does have an audience and clearly is a a work of art to be censored or to be uh i don't know uh pushed aside because certain people don't like it um yeah I, i think that's all I have to say about that. Right, right. Okay, but, so back yeah, in but, a but, but, but back to Peter. We've yeah, we yeah. really, really <laughs> no, off, it's okay. off base. But um, Peter's, anyway, so Peter is uh, uh, just, an, yeah, and I keep on saying this, exceptionally talented actor who has his own really unique background. Um, I mean, both him and... Uh, Betsy Brown's films are films that I believe are the direct result of really trying to look towards um, the most honest, authentic um, expression of self, even if it's extremely ugly. And uh, their movies are amazing and they're awesome. And uh, so anyways, approaching Peter with the role of Delicious Tacos uh, he was, he didn't think about it for that long, um, from what I understand, but he did agree to it. 
And um, it was a really good fit, um, both physically and in terms of my faith that he would be able to uh, take on this role. Um, yeah, you know, the voice is really not that different. It's it's like he really does sound like him. And in yeah. particularly in the so you you actually changed the read, right? You changed to a different read in the trailer. Yeah, um we did uh we did two recordings. The first yeah. sound recording wasn't that good, and so the second sound recording um the, uh, the audio quality was a lot better and uh yeah, um Peter's delivery is amazing and uh it just uh it came out really really well and uh it was a real pleasure also to just take an audio recording and uh a selfie and to be able to transform that into a 90 second trailer that was very satisfying right right um so now can we talk about like some of the other casting decisions and stuff in it is that like public yet or do we not want to say anything about that well, I think that it's kind of difficult to say, first of all, because nobody else is 100% confirmed. Yeah, yeah okay. Um, and also, I mean, I am wary of uh, giving any, of, of making it clear which Delicious Tacos story that we have, uh, that we oh, are. Oh, really? So that, we don't even want to talk about which one? I'd prefer, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. we can discuss around it and we can talk about possibly some of the reasons why people are responding to it the way they are, but I would much prefer it to remain a secret if it, it, it yeah. Uh, Wait, but until, until it gets released. Doesn't Curtis call it out in his latest piece? He didn't say, he didn't say which one it was. Oh, he didn't actually, uh, he didn't actually say which one it was. He just said it was the most horrible, delicious taco story <laughs> okay. ever. Um, which I'm, I'm on the fence about. I'm yeah, curious. How did how did you find out about Delicious Tacos writing? Oh man, God, what a good question. So I um, it's a really weird story. I I you know I've been in this for a long time, and I the, the reason why no one remembers that is because I left. I like cut ties to this whole scene for like three years, and I'm really just coming back. Um, hmm. But in my earlier incarnation. I had written a book. Um, I wrote a book. So I was started writing for Vice, you know, a long time ago in LA Weekly. I was like a cultural columnist for LA Weekly. And even before that, I had basically written a book about my experiences in Vietnam working as an MA attorney at a um, law firm there for a summer. And you're you know, an MMA I, attorney? MA, yeah. Yeah. MA, okay. MA, not MMA. Mm. <laughs> that's a different that's a different type. But yeah, I was I worked as a summer intern at, at a um, in law school. You do like summer internships where you like act as a lawyer at a firm for both summers. So I did one mm -hmm. summer working at a law firm in Vietnam that did M&A law. And I wrote a book uh, about that called Philosophy and Fucking in Vietnam. That's not very good. And like most things that people write, I wrote it just completely blind. It was the first thing I'd ever written professionally. And I just put it out, you know, like I kind of have a reverse uh, trajectory from tacos specifically, you know, tacos always says, oh, you know, I wrote for a year before I published anything. He wrote like posts for a full year before he published any single one of them. Right. Yep. So yep. He, he cut his teeth on his own. 
I did that totally in reverse. I've always cut my teeth on the public, right? So I didn't really mm. become a really good writer, you know, like the guy you see in Vanity Fair today. I didn't become that for 10 years. You know, I I just had to put out trash for 10 years before I really got it, you know? Whereas Tacos did it privately. And also, you read earlier Tacos, he's he really got much better over time. He found his style over time. And you see that yep. with a lot of writers. You know, you read early Bukowski, it's the same thing. Early Bukowski is like flowery poetic and it's like not really good and he didn't really find his voice until later on so mm -hmm. um anyway this earlier incarnation with this book I, I put out this book and this book uh philosophy and fucking vietnam it like went viral on the red pill on reddit right huh. so i sold you know like three thousand four thousand copies which is actually a shit ton for just some random book that you know a no totally unprofessional writer just put out there i had good design um actually i think a guy that you know's wife edited it for me it was a total woke this was before i found anybody in the frog scene so like i didn't know any of this stuff so i this like woke woman edited it but um uh anyway i was out one day and i met a guy who's actually gore vidal's nephew and mm. I said to him, he was like, oh, who are you? I was like, oh, yeah, no, I'm a writer. And he was like, oh, what are you writing? And I was like, oh, I just published this book about Vietnam. He's like, dude, I just read that book. <laughs> totally random. And me and him became friends. And he was like an absolute tacos devotee, uh, this guy, Eric Vidal. And um, I started reading tacos through him. And luckily, he knew tacos. Like, it, he was associated with tacos in L.A. So I was lucky enough to start actually hanging out with him. So, you know, that we've been hanging out like that for like eight years, seven years, you know, here in L.A. Wow. So, yeah. And I've followed his career from, you know, the very since he had, I think he had 7000 Twitter followers, you know, when I started uh, hanging out with him. And, you know, I've just been absolutely blown away. I literally think he's like one on a very, very short list of writers worth reading in America today. And so, uh, yeah, I'm, I've been a big fan of his for a long time. What was it that stood out for you about his writing? autopilot? So the, the, the first thing that really, I read his short story autopilot, which I still think is his second most read. And actually, hmm. yeah, I actually published it as part of a poetry book later, but um, republished. But uh, that story autopilot just got me. Hmm. And autopilot is a story that's actually, we joke that it's the people at Apple stole it to make, the series um about the memory have you seen that show it's on apple severance it's severance yeah so it's a similar it's severance it's basically the idea of severance more or less hmm. Except it's a short story and it's just the way it's articulated and the way it's told is just like perfect and that was really the one that i read it's funny like a lot of guys i think tacos a lot of men read him because it's like for the sex stuff and the you know like the relationship and it's he's a sad sack a lot of times whereas i actually all my favorite tacos writing is not about sex at all is like, it more the science fiction um kind of i mean are you a person that also then really likes finally some good news in terms of the projections of like what the future might look like well, so I i'm mean, not a I, sorry go ahead no sorry is it but is it more of the the tacos writing that is a little bit more of a what if style writing 
Well, so no, actually, I don't like sci. I'm not a sci-fi guy at all. I don't, you know, everybody's mm. always like, "Oh, have you read Snow Crash?" And I'm, always, I try reading that stuff, and I'm just like, "Ugh," you know. Like Dune was okay, but besides that, I don't really read sci-fi. Um, mm-hmm. No, I like his shit that I like the most is like when he. Have you read his post about shit jobs at McDonald's? When he's talking about working at McDonald's when he's 15 years old. That one's That's like one of my favorite ones of his. So. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I just don't really, I'm just not that into like sex writing. So I guess that's mm. part of the reason why I, you know, I still like that stuff a lot. I still really get why he writes it. It's just, um, no. So yeah, it's not the sci-fi elements of him that I like. It's, it's just the way he, I, I mean, you know, he, it's the craft of it. You know, I've, I've learned so much from him on how to write. Mm. And I think so many guys in our scene copy him because he is a, absolute master of just composing a paragraph the way the way he uses nouns and the way he uses voice and the way he structures sentences is just unparalleled really of anybody i don't think anybody currently writing you know bukowski did it bukowski really knew how to do that in the same way almost but tacos just the voice comes through so well so really whatever he's writing about like i'm I'm there for it. You know, it doesn't really matter what. What about Is you? There... How did you uh, get into Oh, I mean, I was newly sober. And so finding an author that was in recovery that was also depraved yeah. was, um, <laughs> was perfect. Was, yeah, it was very satisfying and um, relatable. And, um, I felt that I immediately recognized um, the good faith yeah. that was being practiced in the writing, um, the the search for personal truth, um, and the 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 commitment to being honest um, about one's own personal experience and to really connect to that. Um, I saw that on the page just immediately. Um, and, uh, I remember somebody saying this at one point that, uh, people read books, uh, to feel less lonely and, um, that when I read what he, uh, when I read his writing, I felt that he was articulating experiences that, um, even if I had not gone through them, I could relate to the feelings, um, and it was uh it was really great and yeah i mean the pussy is uh the book that uh, uh describes his experience um in his uh early recovery and uh i was in early recovery and uh it was uh it was a wonderful uh thing to be able to read at that point um i also just strongly admire the fact that uh, the accessibility of the writing, which I feel is um, a lot harder to do than it appears to be, um, to be able to boil down um, your writing and to kind of like take off um, so many aesthetic elements in order to once again just connect to the truth as much as possible. And I've always just been a fan of authors and in, as far as fiction goes um my fiction writers have always been pop writers in a lot of ways 
you know? So like I'm looking at my bookshelf right now. And when I was a teenager, I was obsessed with Douglas Copeland. When I was in college, I was obsessed with William Gibson um, and Bretty Stanellis. Um, and uh, in general, the authors that I've gravitated towards have just been people that um, really boil down their writing so that you can hear it, so that you can connect to it, to it and it doesn't require a dictionary um, to be at your side for every page. Now, at this point in my life, I mean, I enjoy um, complicated writing and I'm enjoying classics quite a bit. Um, what are you reading? Moby Dick. Ah, nice. Moby Dick is great. Moby Dick is, I mean, this is so obvious, but like, you know, I've read it. It, That one, that holds up really well. Yeah. And I skipped a lot of classics. Um, Yeah. So, uh, and a friend of mine was kind of pointing out to me that at the point in time when books like, when Melville and Dickens were writing these books, this was kind of the period of the epic novel. And um, that this was the art, this was the the art form at the time. Um, But yeah, I just think that DT is incredibly accessible and um, he's really willing to speak the truth of uh, the, uh, the truth and the anonymity factor uh, really serves him well at this point in time. um, Because I think that he, it, really makes him willing to connect to the, the the secrets and the secrets that a lot of people carry and uh, will never, ever state right, uh, right. in terms of desires and in terms of fears and um, in terms of feelings, honestly. And uh, he's also a person that like is in terms of his own growth and stuff like that, um, he's got to, he's got a lot of wisdom to offer. Um, I find that like the latest writing has been incredibly, incredibly stoic. And yeah. like, uh, it's insightful. like about like gardens and staring at the sky and yeah. And it's like, it's, it's stillness. It's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and, uh, there's always a line in there that I'm just, that, that really gets me. Um, so yeah. And so I, I, I read his stuff and was just, uh, I kind of knew that this was going to be an author that like, like people like Bryson Ellis and Douglas Copeland and Gibson and Talon and stuff like that, that I just, that this was going to be an author that I was going to be committed to. And I was going to read every single thing that they ever wrote and, uh, was lucky enough to have the opportunity to interview him um yeah for sex uh, mag right for sex mag yeah and had the opportunity to meet him in person and um then when it came to adapting you know and after i had met him and after i had interviewed him i asked i finally asked his permission to adapt the short story and uh he said yeah sure go for it um and it was interesting because as i started going through the process um, of going through that story line by line, uh, which I've done now hundreds, so many times that I basically have the entire story memorized. Um, what was fascinating about it was that um, what seemed like kind of a fairly spontaneous piece, and maybe it was written that way, I don't really know for sure. Um, every line is perfect. 
I can't overstate this, that the story for the film that we're, that, that I'm committed to adapting, every single line is perfect. Every single kind of shift in terms of narrative is absolutely perfect. It has, um, and it's written despite the fact that it is depraved and it is depraved. It is an absolutely depraved short story. It also is operating securely in good faith. And, um, you know, I've gone through, you know, I've been looking at this one short story for almost three years now. And uh, at certain points I was, I really had doubts. I was like, why do you want to write? Why do you want to make this thing? Um, And at this point in time, I'm just so resolved that there is absolutely nothing wrong with this story. There is absolutely nothing wrong with um, making a film out of this. And that because there's just so much truth in it. Um, Yeah. So I feel really strongly about it. And I really wonder what it would be like to be able to give equal attention to other stories like autopilot to be able to find out just uh, how, you know, how well they're crafted as well or how they're, how they're designed. Does that make sense? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, so what's going to happen? I mean, like say that you, the Kickstarter doesn't come through, then what happens? Um, well, we're, I'm fairly confident that the Kickstarter is going to go through. I mean, we, I shouldn't say that there's a chance that it won't go through. Um, if it doesn't go through, um, everybody will be refunded their money and we will find a new strategy to making this short film happen. This isn't the only way to make a movie. Um, I was encouraged to to do it this way, and the results has, have been uh, very fortuitous. Um, we've been able to connect with people that, I mean, I think that you and I really started our conversation in a totally different way when I started pursuing this project. We definitely started talking a lot more. Um, and there's other people that I've been able to connect with uh, that I wouldn't have been able to if I hadn't really put myself out there. Um, So I do believe that crowdsourcing funding isn't the only way. Um, And I've already said it on the Kickstarter that this is not, this is only a fraction of the budget. This is just really to get the, uh, get the ball rolling. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, it's going to happen. Um, I, I believe that it's going to happen. Um, that doesn't mean that I'm going to destroy myself or, you know, go into debt or some, do something stupid or impulsive in order to make it happen, but, uh, it is going to happen. Yeah. I think it'll happen. Yeah. I I, I think there's enough political will behind it, as they say, um, at at the same time, if you are listening and you are a person (laughs) that wants to support the arts and be the, and be a part of what will be arguably one of the most fucked up short films ever made and will most likely definitely be shot on film. Um, I strongly encourage you and ask for your support on this project. So are you a film purist like shooting on film? No, absolutely not. Um, It's just that um, both Andy 
um, my producer, who's absolutely incredible, and uh, some other people that are interested in getting involved, uh, all feel strongly that shooting on film for this would both be appropriate and would also elevate the content. That's one of the yeah. other things that we're really interested in trying to do here is that with this kind of uh, heterodox material, um, there's always this risk that it's just going to kind of be ghettoized and it's going to be put in a place where it just doesn't have the same kind of, um, what's the word, um, that it's not elevated um, to the level of the kind of stuff like like severance, for example. And while we're not making anything at that level, it is really important for us to have production value. It is really important for us to have something that looks really cool and uh, feels really cool and uh, has great music and everybody's really hot and, uh, <laughs> you know, all, the, all, all, all those elements as well. A little bit of the issue, though, is short film. It's like somebody who's going to give to a short film. Like, so is the plan to, like, get it into festivals or? Yeah, you know, the, the, the big yeah. plan. We, we're talking right now to a, a streaming platform that um, is looking to launch in the near future. I can't say their name. But most likely, um, the plan is that we will be uh, premiering online um, at this uh, streaming uh, at this uh, on a streaming platform that you have to sign up and join in order to see the film. I see. Okay. And yeah, um, and it's not Daily Wire. Uh, <laughs> well, I would hope. I don't think um, something um, tells me I, they would not be interested in this. Yeah, nothing um, but respect for Dallasonian, but um, yeah. not Daily Wire. Um, did you see Ron Hyde fight? Did you like that one? Uh, I didn't. I think I watched like a little bit of it, but no, I I didn't. I haven't been too into the stuff that uh, Daily Wire has been making. To be honest, Ron Hyde fight is amazing. It's, it's kind good. of like a. It's like a Tony Scott joint. Um, right, it's right. yeah um and even um the movie that followed it up the one that vincent gallo cameoed in was pretty amazing as well i really like those films um but run hide fight was um as far as being like a, a school shooter film very impressive really as good okay, as Elef elephant it. but it's not as good as elephant but it's pretty i mean it's it's a tony scott jump like that's it really feels like just a classic action film starring high school kids wow um it's uh really i, I enjoyed it a lot but um but the yeah the, so the plan is is um we're we're going to make the short we're going to apply to film festivals with the goal of premiering it at a fairly open-minded <laughs> film festival and uh then do a few in-person screenings and then eventually get released on, um, on a streaming platform. That's the goal. Um, it definitely won't be just going on YouTube. Um, right. It's that, you know, it's not just going to get thrown onto Vimeo or anything like that. This is uh, it's for, for a variety of reasons. 
Man, it would be really great if like all these controversial films could be collected in one place and, you know, shown as part of a gallery exhibit or something. You know, that would be, you know, yeah. kind of degenerate, <laughs> degenerate art exhibit, you know, like all the forbidden art. I it know was it's funny because I saw yeah. you. Go ahead. Sorry. I saw that you posted on Twitter that uh, your uh, favorite horror film was Martyrs, and I was very, uh, I was, uh, I was impressed. <laughs> oh yeah, dude, no, I, a, I love that, Martyrs. That's uh, really going straight to the point, um, dude. I love that movie. Did, did you Kino Corner, who's been on this podcast? He just did a a whole uh, episode on Martyrs. Yeah, big respect to Peter. Uh, yeah, big respect not... to Isaac. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah, yeah, he's no, yeah, that movie Martyrs Man is is really good. Um, yeah, no, I I have decent taste in movies. I I also in that thing he talks about Gaspar Noé's first film, I Stand Alone. Have you ever seen that? Hmm. That is a blind spot for me. Actually, oh, no, I haven't dude, seen that one. It yeah. is so it's so fucked up, obviously, but it's yeah. so. I was like, I was in high school. I was like singing the praises of uh, I Stand Alone. I was always really into that. Um, I was uh, I only recently yeah. finally saw Love and uh, couldn't believe how good it was. Um, I think yeah, that that's solid. actually I think that that's my favorite one um, at this point. Um, it was so incredible. I wish I'd gone to see that in the theater. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, Gaspar, man, did you see his new The Old People yeah. movie? I didn't see it. It was, yeah, it was fantastic. Um, yeah. Vortex, Vortex was great. Um, but Vortex was fantastic. But yeah, love, um, just uh, I found it, yeah, really satisfying, uh, really beautiful, really hot. I mean, um, yeah, and like kind of interesting because part of I think it was it was weird because last year around this time um I was watching I felt like I was watching a lot of movies with sex scenes in them. It became like a a weird thing where I was noticing like oh wow yeah I'm watching Gaspar Noé's Love I'm watching um Time Me Up Time Me Down there yeah. was an Alma uh, there was an Almodovar festival in Vancouver at that time uh, not a festival just a retrospective and I was watching all these Almodovar movies that have in my opinion some of the most incredible sex scenes um that I'd ever seen in films and uh I was it was so weird that after kind of going through this phase or whatever, seeing the idea of the, the, the discourse that sex scenes in movies were um, cringe or not appealing was really confusing and, uh, and kind of weird, uh, honestly. And uh, I was, it's always, but it's always one of those things that you just also got to wonder if they're actually just seeing the movies that have the good ones. And um or if now they've decided that a movie like Call Me By Your Name or something like that is uh, considered to be cringe. Or if it's only heterosexual sex scenes. I don't know. Well, so to, uh, you're straight, right? Are you straight? Yes. Yes, okay. I'm straight. So yeah. let's, let's I, as we've talked about, I wrote a piece about this. A bunch of people have written pieces about this, like sex scenes are now cringe thing. So yep. I stand, or uh, <laughs> Call Me By Your Name is a, a good topic. What is what are straight guys? And I asked this girl Magdalene about this, who is on the show. 
what are straight guys supposed to feel in this in in for example call me by your name like are we supposed to find this hot like yeah i think that there's a challenge um i was thinking about this a little bit because i don't totally know the answer yeah um i have a few ideas or things about that which is like the fact is is that um a lot of women are turned on by images of other women um so that being a reality then you could make the argument well some men in general aren't as much turned on you know turned on by images of other men um and then i would feel inclined to think about something like the comic book industry and superheroes and how in general um those comic books do feature incredibly ripped features of men looking extremely powerful and masculine and would have to ask whether or not there was something about that for men that was appealing so I can't just go with the argument that men are, you know, not interested in images of other men in a sexualized way. Um, but they might actually not be uh, experiencing it consciously uh, or with a certain, with a, with a, with a awareness. Then yeah, well, I mean, gay when, men when you're certainly, t- you know, gay but, men but, are but, attuned to that. Yeah, or whatever, exactly. gay, bisexual, whatever you want to be. Right? Right. Yeah. But then you've got... But yeah, so what I'm trying to say is that in general, there are erotic images of men that men do consume, but they may not consciously uh, consume them as erotic. If Does that make sense to you? Uh, kind of, I guess. I mean, I think it's just trying to like do these loop to loops and it's, it's just like, (laughs) you know, (laughs) look, there's going to be some guys that have that gear, you know, there's going to be some guys that have that gear that that find that shit hot, right? Whatever. That's fine. Uh, And then there's going to be some guys that are disgusted by it. Like me. Like, I think it's fucking, I couldn't, I love Guadagno. Uh, The Bigger Splash is one of my favorite movies of the past decade. I love that movie. A bigger splash. Yeah. I've watched it like four times. I think it's a fantastic movie. And what's amazing, it's a lot about be. It's a lot about like straight male uh, tension and you know that kind of thing. So I was actually really shocked to find that Guadino was gay to begin with. Um, yeah. But you know, call me by your name. To me, it's just like, yeah, no thanks, man. Like it's trying to, you know, it's trying to like make me think this is hot and I'm just utterly disgusted by it, you know, and I understand I'm not supposed to be, but I am. So I'm I'm not just going to like try and psych myself into like, oh, man, I shouldn't feel that way. You know, it's like, no, I'm just like, no, thank. I mean, again, like, dude, I have nothing. To, if you like it, I'm not like it should be banned. I don't care. But just me personally, yeah. like I, I'm not into it. Yeah. And I think the thing that I maybe would want to point out or acknowledge is like with a, almost a little bit of sadness uh, which is that in general um, women a lot of women seem to be able to be turned on by images and depictions of homosexual sex 
Yeah. Whereas in men who are not gay um, don't have that same kind of response, or at least not consciously. Um, at the same time, um, I do think that in general, what you do respond to and what I responded to in a movie like Call Me By Your Name is just the fact that it, it's forbidden love. It's yeah. forbidden romance. Right. And I do think that that is a strong narrative factor that is um, exciting and relatable and universal. Um, you and I talked about this a little bit, but in general, it's extremely hard for heterosexual love stories, romances to have that kind of friction. Right. right. Yeah. And yeah. so the, the typically in terms of the heterosexual uh, romantic narrative, you've got on the most kind of benign level, you've got when Harry met Sally, they're friends. They can't date because they're friends. Yeah. And uh, they can't have sex because they're friends. And then uh, you've got Romeo and Juliet, which is that they're from rival families. And then you've got um, probably arguably the best one, which is kind of the gang on the run uh, romantic narrative, which is true romance and Bonnie and Clyde. Um, but on the other side, you've got movies like Call Me By Your Name, Blue is the Warmest Color, and those movies are just so freaking hot, just in terms <laughs> of their willingness, because of the fact that they get to exist in a zone of transgression, right? Well, uh, I mean, uh, I definitely found Blue is the Warmest Color hot, but... Yeah. You know, I, I think that that's a little bit because, I mean, what, what happened right after that? It was that the, it was the gaze of the horny director, <laughs> you know, like it was hot because he thought it was hot, you know, like, and, and that's why it was hot, you know, and it's kind of the same thing with euphoria. It's like, obviously this guy thinks these high schoolers are hot. That's why he's doing it, you know, and, and you feel it because he's horny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Euphoria is another really interesting example of, I mean, it's pretty brilliant that um, Sam Levinson was able to pretty much express himself largely because it is not a, you know, Euphoria is not a committee written project. It's a project that's written, you know, largely every episode is just written by Sam Levinson himself. Yeah, and right. um, he was able to really express himself through this, uh, through these characters, um, and it is hot. And um, but Euphoria is also really intriguingly designed, as far as uh, the as far as all the different characters' identities yeah. are yeah. extremely useful, and so. Um, in general, every single protagonist has some kind of um, I'm losing my train of thought. No, it's anyways, uh, but uh, but yeah, Euphoria is amazing. Um, Euphoria so, is amazing. I'll just ask this: Do you think that sex scenes have gotten less hot? Um, 
in a general sense, like a Hollywood sex scenes? Well, no. Uh, so I'd kind of go back to the fact that Euphoria is really hot, and uh, there's other things that are, I think, like that that are coming out um, that will be exciting. Um, and I am seeing sex scenes in independent films scary of 61st street had a bunch of sex scenes they yeah were so really how are how are those they were great they were amazing yeah. um okay. but so i don't think that it's over i think that it's more towards the sentiment that people saying this is not what i want in cinema um this is not what i want to be able to see in a movie now, arguably, nobody is going to a movie because to movies just so that they can see sex scenes. That's ridiculous. But at the same time, the idea that being turned on by characters, being turned on by narrative is something that is now unappealing is absolutely ridiculous. And uh, I mean, this is kind of something that maybe relates to what... I was wondering about this in terms of your background, in terms of marketing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you definitely were uh, coming of age at a period of time when sex was being used to market things, mm -hmm. right? You yeah. came of age during the American apparel era, right? where images of hot women and images of hot men were being used to sell clothing. Yeah, and speaking of a horny came, guy, by, by yeah. the world's horniest guy. Yeah. Yeah, by the yeah, yeah, shot by the world's horniest guy. <laughs> and then you've got and then and that came in lieu of a decade of Victoria's Secret, Calvin Klein, Diesel, um a lot of brands and a lot of companies that were using sex as a means of selling things. And what I'm curious about is given the fact that that isn't happening largely anymore, at least in the U S um, how my, I, I think my question is twofold. Are people, is it harder to sell things without using sex as a means of selling things and are clients and advertisers shooting themselves in the foot by not utilizing the strategy um, do you think that it's going to just come back that, uh, do you think that, uh, I, what, what, what do you think is actually going on here? Well, with regard to Dove Charney, um, to return to tacos for a second, ta yeah. uh, he has a great quote where he says J Dove Charney with American apparel perfectly encapsulated wow. like 3am LA horniness. <laughs> mm. like when you're just with this kind of like mid girl and you're like oh man she looks so good right now you know and and i think that that's exactly correct and um and charney kind of per and you know shot on film this like cobra snake kind of aesthetic like that he just nailed that at exactly the right time the funny thing is that dove there is now all the same like little gas station billboards that that got famous from now is Los Angeles apparel. So he's still doing that in LA. You drive around LA, those billboards are still there. It's just now called Los Angeles apparel, which I think is his new company, right? So he's still doing it. And I don't know how successful he is, but uh, I think it, it's still alive. It's not totally dead. 
Um, with but is he to, the only? Yeah. Is he the only brand that is actually doing still yes. do, doing that kind so, of thing? So yeah, so to, yeah. To answer your larger question, you're a hundred percent correct. You know, I, I was in Vegas the other day and I walked by a Victoria's Secret um, store, and it's, uh, you know, the the mannequins are thick, you know. Uh, the images are all fat black women, you know, and f- BIPOC women with like one leg and stuff uh, in all the different images in the store, which is obviously, again, to return to the question, you know, maybe some people find that attractive. I do not. And, you know, most people don't. So, yeah, since women have taken over marketing, obviously sex, since it's been long housed, Sex is off the table, more or less, right? We we can't have that horny male gaze that's actually hot because the people making the ads aren't men anymore. They being people making the ads are almost entirely women. Um, are they shooting? Is that the is that yeah. the, the that is that your experience and what oh, you yeah. witnessed? And is that the Absolutely. the people that are in control? Oh, that's yeah. So I, I wrote an article about this called uh, um, uh, "Vibe Shift to Destroy Marketing World." So there's pretty much two groups of people that are still in charge of making ads. One is hype dads, who was perfectly articulated by the guy who does um, Sean Monahan, the guy who came up with Normcore. Are you familiar with him? He does eight yeah. ball. Yeah, I know Sean. Okay, yeah. So Sean is awesome. He came up with this idea of hype dads that I expanded upon, um, mm-hmm. that kind of went viral. Like it was on Dan Bongino and everything, and. In that, so hype dads are this like antiquated type of kind of woke guy who's not actually woke. He's just ultra political and has learned how to like climb up the ranks. And now he's like late fifties, mid to late fifties, still wears the hipster glasses. They're always Mm -hmm. tall and graying and they have like back problems, but they pretend like they go surfing all the time, but they actually don't. And they love Kendrick mm-hmm. Lamar and they wear, you know, they spend $500 on Nikes. There's this really specific type of creative director that uh, the reason that article resonated is we all deal with this type and they're completely out of touch. And mm-hmm. so they're just barely hanging on. They don't spend any time actually exploring creative. And every ad of like a couple years ago was goat because they always are trying to steal from black culture in every way they can. So like goat, this term of greatest of all time, every ad for one year had like a goat in it because it was this goat pun about greatest of all time. So there's a lot of these hype dads that are still like running things, but everybody under the hype dad, which is this like dying, you know, lame duck kind of president thing in marketing is a woman. Every single person in the power structure in marketing is, is woman almost entirely. It's like Mm. a total takeover. You know, there is, there are almost no men at all involved because marketing it's like a soft skills thing women are attracted to it anyway so you know in the world of like diversity it's just they are all getting promoted in this marketing world so yes Hmm. uh women marketing is more female dominated than any other industry that i've ever been in i worked at a pharma marketing place that was like what i'm talking about like 95 percent women particularly Hmm. in the power uh structure so i think that that is why we're not seeing this horny male gaze anymore, right? But the question you're asking is, does that matter? Are these companies shooting themselves in the foot? And the the answer to that is, well, these companies are completely comfortable alienating every single uh, Trump supporter, right? There's 100 million Trump supporters in the country. 
these companies are totally comfortable alienating every single one of them, right? I mean, they're messaging on every single progressive cause they can find all day. So why are they doing that? Why are these brands who are supposedly capitalist organizations, why are they so comfortable, uh, one, not selling the sex, but not only that, marketing about gay, marketing about, you know, Postmates, the Postmates bottoms menu, you know, like, surely they would think that that would alienate people, right? And Mm. the answer to that, that as far as I understand it, is that companies don't really care about selling products, selling widgets to customers anymore. That's not really their main goal. Companies now are much more complicated money-making organizations that are really um, betrothed to massive international banks, right? And these Hmm. massive international banks have all sorts of ways of giving these companies free money, of affecting their stock prices, and more than anything, getting them massive amounts of like taxpayer dollars, not just from Americans, but from companies all around the world, right? So these Hmm. massive corporations, like we have this kind of antiquated notion that their job is to sell Coca-Cola to the masses, like on an individual basis. But they actually don't really care about that as much anymore. They now are more like nations recruiting citizens than they are like companies selling products. So that's why we've seen all this marketing shift, because uh, there's not the same level of accountability to the bottom line as there used to be. And, you know, a lot of people in my space say, like, go woke, go broke. You know, and you see all these like boomer conservatives being like, oh, look what happened to you know, this company who made woke ads, but that's not true. (laughs) That never sticks, you know, like, oh, there'll be a boycott and the stock price will go down $2 for a week. And then it goes right Mm. back up, you know, because the companies, they don't care about the sales. They care about their Mm. stock price. They care about their access to cheap capital. So Mm. uh, that's why their marketing has really um, become not only desexualized, but just like woke in every other way. So what you're saying is that the reason that uh, this is not a priority in terms of selling products, in terms of sex appeal and stuff like that. It's the goal of the company is now to look good in the eyes of the public narrative, as opposed to just appealing uh, to the actual customer um, on a primal level. Exactly. And uh, definitely. And even beyond that, look at who buys things. You know, 80% of um, purchasing decisions are women. So not only that, you're talking about, you know, white straight men buy almost nothing. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's like people don't really care that much. Like, oh, uh oh, you know, white straight men don't want it. Nobody cares. And that probably was always true. It just, the fact is that it was white straight men making the ads before. So that's why they were these sexy cultural icons that we remember today, right? I mean, we remember all these beautiful, uh, you know, or sexy ads from the past. Um, But it's very likely that those ads could have always been woke and it wouldn't have made a dime of, you know, wouldn't have made any difference at all this entire time. The only thing that I take issue with is the idea that the female gaze is not erotic or horny because my experience has shown me that um, some of the 
greatest and most talented photographers um, that are even still working today um, are women and are deeply erotic, often in ways that um, are that are that that uh, outperform um, their uh, you know straight male counterparts. I mean, and gay male counterparts. I mean, just off the top of the head of my head, like people like Heji Shen um, are, she does extremely erotic photography. Um, the woman whose name, yeah. Heji. Yeah. Heji Shen. Um, but there's a lot of photographers whose names I'm not, I'm blanking on right now. I don't, I ref, I kind of have trouble believing if, if the marketing thing is what you're talking about, that's a world that I don't really have much access to, but in terms of the photographers themselves, I know that women um, do want to photograph uh, erotically and do um, that they are horny and they, they do express themselves. So I do have struggled with the idea that this is um, the female gaze in terms of the actual, at least as far as the photography is concerned. Um, because I, yeah, my experience has shown that, uh, women can be women can and are extremely horny photographers so i'm definitely a fan of like uh you know i love nan golden you know she's Mm -hmm. very cool and we also love that she destroyed the sacklers right um speaking of female photographers and i also love um who's the man i saw a show of hers in paris that was really good she does black and white she's from that same era I mean, there's Corinne Day. There's, um, uh, I, I, I mean, I'm, I, I'm frustrated because my, um, I, Diane I background in photography. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But no, yeah. I, what I'm thinking of more is like the fashion photographers. Right. I'll come right. up with a list of names later, but I mean, in general, um, and especially from the last decade with, um, photographers that kind of came up with tumblr and stuff like that sure um my experience has been that yeah the women are extremely horny photographers i'm just repeating myself <laughs> now well i don't know i just googled this uh hedgy person and yeah. I, I don't know i mean i guess i will stand strong here in saying that i do think that i mean again I, my gaze is male gaze so it's very hard i don't know what makes a woman horny in a picture it's probably a different thing than me right like does a woman feel horny when she sees a american apparel ad i don't know yes 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 absolutely 100 percent, without a doubt but when i genuinely i do think that the woman wants to be gazed at and the man wants to gaze and women want to be photographed as beautiful and they certainly can do it themselves i mean look at what anakachian does she looks super hot in her pics look at dasha and I assume that a lot of those are taken by themselves. So when they're when they're putting themselves out there, they definitely look super hot. But when I'm looking at, because uh, that's what they want, right? They want to be gazed at. They get. I do think that a woman gets almost every, not everything, but almost everything she needs from being beheld as sexy. You know, mm. uh, in terms of the whole mating dance. Um. Whereas I feel like it's just so much stronger when the male, because the male 
days is that that's like the battery of it, right? Like that's the positive and the negative forces in its purest form. Like the male desire with the female presentation in a way. Yeah, we might disagree on this because (laughs) I really strongly believe that women do love to look at images of beautiful women. Um, I don't disagree with that. I guess I'm just talking about the creation of them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Well, no, we can, we can uh, agree to disagree. So before we're done here, which we we can wrap up in a second, I am curious what's happening with speaking of all of this sex mag What's happening with Sex Mag? And is that going to be a part of the release of, of no, the No, no, no. It's, com- it's completely separate. And okay. I have made a real conscious decision not to use that platform to even promote the Delicious Tacos short. Um, Sex Magazine issue number 14 will be released in September. Um, there, We haven't officially started um, conducting any interviews yet, but we've got a really fantastic slate planned and um a pretty exciting cover and um i'm really excited about the next issue um and it will be coming out in september um but uh yeah and then there's also going to be a zine for this uh a band called whistlegraph uh this band slash art collective that should be coming out sometime in the spring that um, i'm really proud of as well yeah so why did you call it sex? I've always wanted to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> um, the magazine's name comes from a conversation that I had when I was very stoned with another artist um, and a friend, Bill Hayden, who, um, when I was in the early stages of saying that I wanted to launch a magazine, he said, I should just call it sex (laughs) and uh, kind of like certain kind of stoner ideas. um, It was just impossible to let go of after that point. Um, And I also was a big fan of Brendan Fowler's zine, sex sells magazines. And I was also a big fan of um, the thugs zine. um, Fuck you. A magazine for the arts. And, uh, I also liked the fact that it was a three-letter word and that, uh, from what I could tell, nobody had done it um, before. But um, the thing is, is that I also didn't really want to make a sexy magazine. That wasn't my goal at all. And uh, my goal was to make a magazine about with conversations with creative artists that was insightful and, and fun and accessible. And uh, so in general, when it comes to naming things, my experience has been that choosing to name things, um, uh, you can't, you can never be on the nose, right? Yeah. So um, a magazine that's incredibly uh, sexy, like purple is called purple. It's not called sexy fashion photo magazine. Um, Yeah. yeah. There always has to be some kind (laughs) of like uh, opposite effect going on so sex magazine always was just uh the name was chosen it was impossible to let go of it's been um you know sometime i've gone through phases where i've absolutely hated the name Mm -hmm. and sometimes where i've been convinced that it's absolutely perfect um but it definitely kind of comes out of a period of time in the 2000s where also 
I think a lot of signifiers weren't really tied to their literal meaning at that point. Um, I think that things have gotten a lot more literal um, over the past uh, decade and that people are, are a lot more literate in terms of what words mean and um, what uh, symbols mean. And at that point in time, when I was doing the magazine, it felt like people in general were very excited about the idea of freeing things up from that. Yeah. Um, and I think we're in a very uh, different phase of that right now. But I just didn't want to do a magazine with like this kind of some kind of like really boring modernist name, like Index or something like that. Yeah. yeah like I, no. I have a lot of I have a lot of respect for Index magazine. I admire it deeply. Um, but even a magazine like interview magazine, which is like really brilliant in how simple it is. Um, it's not really just a magazine of interviews, even though interviews are, you know, a big part of it and stuff like that. It's a magazine of celebrity and it's a magazine of, you know, but it, but it's not called celebrity magazine. Right. 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 Um, but it is, that's what interview magazine is. If you were going yeah. with the most like on the nose name, you would call interview magazine, celebrity magazine. Um, so in general, I just find that like, you know, there's something weird about naming things where you just are never, it's never a good idea to be exactly on the nose. Well, but right. But I mean, that's what was funny about it. Right. I mean, it's actually really yeah. funny that we're talking about this because again, my first book was called philosophy and fucking in Vietnam for this exact reason. <laughs> Cause I because... was talking to, I was talking to somebody about it and I was like, well, what's like the simplest way I can put this right. You know, and without having it be dressed up in any, you know, uh, like funny, clever reference or anything like that. Right. I was like, what's like the least referential thing I can do here. You know? Mm-hmm. Um, which I thought was interesting. I also think the pussy, by the way, to bring it back to tacos, is the same thing. It's like, I'm not trying to name this anything interesting. I'm trying to just give it the clearest name. And I think that Sex Magazine is like that too. But I also, so, you know, again, one of my biggest regrets in life is naming my book that because I wish I just, it just kills me that I named it that because I wish I could just have it there without being named that and have yeah. it be something nobody ever read and just like looked designed well and was there. But instead, I have to kind of hide it because, like, the name is too gross. You know, it's, like, too gross for me. I mean, the pussy as a title is another interesting one because, I mean, my interpretation of it after reading it was that it's really about, it's, he's the pussy. He's the coward that has to, that he's the pussy, he's the coward. He's the one that needs to grow. Wow. He's the one that needs to change. Um, I always like thought that that title, you know, had this one, you know, obvious at the front load thing, but on the other side of it is really just about a man that's scared. Wow. And, um, that's actually that, really genius and smart. I never put that together, but maybe that's really true. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> awesome. All right, man. Well, dude, thank you so much. Uh, I will obviously put everything in the notes. Um, yeah, and let's hope we can get this friggin' thing happening. I think it's gonna happen. I think we'll. I mean, Curtis is. If Curtis is on your side, I'm. I think it's gotta happen in some way. You know. Thank you so much, Isaac. This was a lot of fun to do. I really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Talk to you later.
。はい。